Hey, thanks for being here today. What a joy it is every first day of the week to gather with you and worship Jesus Christ, our Savior, honoring Him for all that He's done for us. The blessings that we have in our life are because of Jesus Christ and all He did on that cross for us. That empty tomb is a reminder that we have hope in what He's done for us and that we will get to live with Him one day. Uh, Thanks for being here today to celebrate Jesus Christ and encourage one another uh, in this time together as we journey through each week uh, trying to live out that hope that Christ has given us. I want to say a special welcome to the uh, guests that are here today. Thanks for joining us and being a part of our assembly. Uh, Certainly, we uh, hope that if you're looking for a church home today, you could say you found it. We'd love for you to be a part of our Crosspoint family. All of us have made a decision to be disciples of Christ, and uh, we just simply want to surrender our gift sets to God and say, God, use us in your story how you see fit. We want to be a part of what you're doing in the world. And so we invite you into that process to also help share that story of hope around uh, the community in which we live. This morning, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I hope you've got your Bibles and will turn with me there. Uh, No doubt you'll want to make some uh, notes in the margin as we talk about this particular text and how it relates to Christian leadership. We've been talking about leadership for several weeks, and as Cale mentioned, there are multiple opportunities coming up with the school year kicking off uh, to get involved in ministry, and certainly our ministry fair is a place that we want you to stop and check that out. We'll very soon be signing up for our connect groups as well, and the expectation of course, is at Crosspoint that you would be in a connect group. It is our teaching model. But as I mentioned, it is that time of the year where uh, everyone goes back to school and all the parents are saying it's the most wonderful time of the year. (laughs) Can't wait to get that going. Sorry, youth group. I know that was uh, a bit touchy. But uh, as we have taken a look at leadership and Christian leadership, we know that the world desperately needs to know what that picture looks like. We're reminded, and we know each and every day, that we simply look at Jesus Christ, and He is our model for what Christian leadership should look like. We started from the get-go. This series is uh, called Upside Down. It's because Jesus' life offers a different model for leadership than the world would show us. The world is about, number one, it's about me, it's about being at the top of the pyramid, and in Jesus' body, in his community, Jesus says everyone is equal. There is no pyramid. That each of us are gifted in different ways, but, but we're all the same in Christ Jesus. Jesus' own life models for us, and he taught that really living this life out under him is a call to sacrificial living. It's a call to, to be selfless in your approach to life. To say, like, other people are more important than I am. Jesus taught us that all through his life, and so we're called to live that ignited lifestyle and say, I want to be like Jesus. And so we look different than the world around us. We also noticed in Paul's writings, he talked about all the different gift sets that the body of Christ has, but that each and every one of us bring those gift sets together in the body of Christ, and then it becomes everything that God hoped that it would be. That the body of Christ, the church, is everything that the, uh, that the world needs to see for the hope of Jesus Christ. That there's no one particular uh, gift set that is more important than another. Leadership is certainly one of the many gift sets that any congregation, they come together as the body of Christ, and they have uh, dovetailed together so that, again, we can tell that story of hope to the world around us. We also found out that in one of the early churches in Thessalonica, we looked at 1 Thessalonians and were reminded that men and women who bubbled to the top in leadership in the church 
were already looking like Jesus Christ in their life. That's why they bubbled to the top as leaders within the church. It had nothing to do with money, had nothing to do with tenure at the church, how long they'd been there, or, or what the, the nameplate was uh, after, after their name, what type of degree they had. But it had everything to do with men who were actually already looking like Jesus because they were servant-hearted. They, their desire was to put other people in front of themselves. And because of that, the church honored and esteemed them and listened to their voice. They became the leaders of that first church, as did the other churches. And so we're reminded in this context, as we've started broad, talking about Christian leadership, but then beginning to focus a little bit on church leadership. What do leaders within the church look like? Today and then next week, I want to unpack the same text that we're going to take a look at in First Timothy to talk specifically about church leadership. But while I'm focusing on that in Paul's text, I want us all to be reminded that each and every one of us should try to attain the types of character traits that Paul says leaders in the church should have. Because the truth is, they look like Jesus. And each and every one of us want to look like Jesus. Whether we're an actual leader in the congregation, we are a leader somewhere, whether that's in our community, in our home, in our workplaces, wherever it might be. And so we want to look like Jesus has called us to be. In 1 Timothy and Titus, if you look at your notes on your bulletin there, the the sermon notes, you'll notice I've got both those texts there. We're going to focus on 1 Timothy, uh, but both of those texts are almost identical as they talk about the type of men the church should have in those leadership positions. Both of those letters from the Apostle Paul were written between 62 and 64 AD, uh, and he wants to make sure that within the churches there is a great leadership that is stable and talking about the good news, the gospel. There's some false teaching going on, which we'll take a look at at in just a moment, that Paul wants to quell. He wants to put it down. He wants to make sure that those churches are teaching the gospel message and are aware of the false teaching that is going around. Those two letters are not an essay on church uh, hierarchy. They're not an essay on cultural gender differences and policies. What they really are, though, is you look at the bulk and take all of the context of Paul's writing and then look at what he's writing in 1 Timothy and in Titus. You'll notice two or three things. One is that it's a passionate advocacy for the good news. Paul wants to make sure that the good news is what people are hearing each and every day. Paul also is talking about the ongoing progress of the church itself in the world and the new life that it brings to all those who make a decision to be disciples of Jesus Christ. That there is something different about people who want to follow Jesus Christ. It looks very different than the world around us and it's very uh, healthy and it's a better way of living. Jesus calls us to that upside down living. Well, Paul writes and sends then his two envoys, who are Timothy, a young evangelist, and another young man by the name of Titus, to two different locations to take these letters to the churches that are in those locations. Timothy, he sends to the town of Ephesus in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And so he has this idea of some things that are going on in the church that he wants to make sure and correct. Titus, he sends to the island of Crete because there are other different false teachings happening on that island that he wants to make sure the church is aware of. And a couple of these different things I want to address just briefly to give you some backstory to why Paul would have been concerned about what those false teachings would have been about. Uh, 
Certainly in every church that was established, there were two different types of people within the church, two different types of culture. One would be those Jewish Christians that came out of the living under the Mosaic law, and then Greek Christians who would have really had nothing to do with that Jewish type of lifestyle. But we know, based upon all the different writings we have in the New Testament, that many of the, uh, the Jewish Christians in those churches were trying to get the Greek Christians to kind of come in line with some of that Mosaic teaching. Circumcision was one of those things. And Paul wants to remind the church, listen, we're not under the Mosaic law anymore. We have freedom in Christ. Christ did everything that we needed to be one with God on that cross and through that empty grave. And so we no longer are under that Mosaic form of law. But in Ephesus specifically, there was this new idea that was developing and that was kind of coming out as a story about Christianity. There were Christians that were called Gnostics. Now, Gnosis is simply the Greek word for knowledge. Uh, And they claimed to have this special knowledge that put them in a salvific state with God. In other words, they had the real story about what was going on in Christian life. I'm going to give you the bare-bones idea about what Gnosticism was truly about. Basically, Gnostics believed that there was a supreme being who we call God, and he lived in a very distant place, uh, was not very close to earth at all, and that actually there was a lesser divinity that in the Christian faith we call Satan or the devil, and he actually created earth. Now, why, why the difference there? Well, one, God is so pure, he is so righteous, he is so sinless, that, that there's no way he could have created the world because the world is full of gossip and greed and sinfulness and carnality. There's no way that God could have been a part of that. And so they created this idea that there was some kind of separation and that this lesser God actually created the world. Then God, because he wanted this connection to his creation, humankind, he sent an envoy, Jesus Christ, his son, to earth in the form of a man, to tell about this special knowledge that Jesus then parted that knowledge to the disciples and the the disciples to the church. Now, Paul wants to backtrack a little bit, and he says, Timothy, I want you to take this letter and talk to the church in Ephesus and remind them this is fallacy. It is not true. There's nothing in this story that even resembles the gospel. I want you to remind the leadership there to be teaching the true gospel message And that is, in fact, God did create the world, that it's man who failed God. But even despite that, he sent his son in fleshly form to live a life here, to teach what it meant to love those around us, that godly type of love, who died on a cross, who was resurrected and now sits at the right hand of God. That's the true gospel. And he wants to make sure that Timothy takes this letter to the leaders to say, hey, you need to be aware that this type of teaching is going on. And you need to focus on the true story of salvation. Now, Titus, he sent uh, much the same letter, but for a different problem that existed in Crete. Now, most of us are familiar with uh, Zeus, who is part of the uh, Greco-Roman mythology. Uh, And Zeus was the god of all gods in their pantheon. But there's an interesting legend that goes along with Zeus that he actually was born as a man in a cave on Mount Ida on the the island of Greece, or Crete, rather. And so Crete has this special place in this Greco-Roman mythology that eventually Zeus grew up, and he decided to become the god of all gods, and he did battle with his father, 
Kronos. He and his siblings, they defeated Kronos, and now he became the god of all gods. So in Crete mythology, there was a human being born in a cave who eventually rose and elevated himself to the level of God. And Paul says, that's myth and legend. The truth is that Jesus Christ was always God, and he came down in the form of flesh. He lived a life out. He taught us how to love one another and live the type of love that God had for us to live. He died on a cross, he rose from the grave, and he now sits at the right hand of God. He says that's the true gospel story, and you need to be aware of these myths and legends that are ruminating around the places where the church has been established. Make sure, as leaders of the church, that you talk about the true gospel message, what it truly is about. Now, in 1 Timothy, where we're going to go to in just a little bit, traditionally within churches of Christ, it's kind of been this model of hierarchy for church. That's how we've kind of taken 1 Timothy and Titus. Uh, And I'm going to really pull the curtain back on some of this because I think it's important for us to know the reason and the function of these letters to these particular churches. Remember that Timothy and Titus are envoys for Paul. Paul cannot go to these locations, so he sends uh, these missionary men to make sure and appoint elders in both of these locations, make sure that the church is growing as it should. The letters that are sent are actually uh, resemble a, a common form of document that existed in that first century, and it was sent by an official to local magistrates who, held, uh, who handed that on to local officials and who then read it to the populace. And so the letter reads a lot like this Greco-Roman document that existed uh, in ancient times. And in 1 Timothy, those who assume leadership roles, we find out, uh, include uh, men who are shepherds and elders, folks who are deacons in the church. And even in 1 Timothy 5.16, there's some illusion that there were some women leadership roles as well. It's important that we understand Ephesus had been uh, established for a few years when they got this letter. Crete, on the other hand, was a brand new mission field for the church, and the church was just being established. Paul tells Titus in his letter, ordain shepherds or elders in every city where the church does exist. And so if we look at the context of both of these letters, we see that Paul is responding simply to the crisis within the church, this false teaching that is going on. And Paul wants to make sure the leadership is strong, so that they can combat this false teaching with the true gospel message. Paul knows that if the leadership is strong, that the church will be strong as well and be stable. In in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul reminds the leadership and the church, they say, listen, he says, don't get tied up in all these legends. Don't get tied up in all these, these mysteries about what is or what could be. He says, what I really want you to do is to be everything Christ made you to be. That is, love everyone. Be pure in heart, have a genuine faith for who Jesus Christ truly is and tell that story over and over again. And both of these letters remind us that in every generation there is a challenge that faces the church. Paul in the first century and we in the 21st century, we have our own set of challenges, but those challenges will help determine the church's mission and its identity in that moment of time. What is the church going to be about? So the appointment of leaders was not simply to fill out an organizational chart for the church, but it was a challenge to choose those most capable for guiding the church in a time of transition. 
We brought this up last week, but there are some differences between the church that Paul attended to and the church that we have today uh, in the 21st century. Uh, Paul dealt with house church. In other words, in each town there was a home where families gathered to worship God, to live life together, to encourage and love on one another. And so in any given moment, you really had a good pulse on who needed some financial help, who needed food on their table, who needed a job, who was sick and needed to be visited. How did we need to encourage one another? In our current context in the 21st century, it's a little more difficult than that. We're averaging here at Crosspoint about 550 on any given Sunday morning. And for our 13 shepherds to attend to all the different families that attend here can be troublesome at times. Sometimes we don't know uh, about what's happening in your life for a few days or even weeks after it's happened. And so sometimes it's difficult to get a, a pulse on what's happening there. We also realize that in our own uh, life that uh, there are things that happen, for instance, in technology, dealing with social media. Almost immediately, we find out about things happening in our community or across the world. And in Paul's day, it was like we have just uh, going to read here in just a moment. He hands a letter to an envoy who takes it by foot to another congregation in another town. It may have taken days, weeks, months for that to get to every church that it needed to. And so there are some differences in that first century church, which was culturally relevant for Paul and for us today. And so we need to be also aware of that. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we traditionally have called uh, this list of uh, character traits, uh, character, uh, characteristic or qualifications of a church leader. What are the qualifications of a church leader? But I really think the letter calls attention to the character and good habits of men and women who are good leaders within the context of church. And again, I want us to remember that the list that we're going to read in just a moment is really something for all of us to try to attain, for all of us to really dig into and try to be. I will say, too, that this idea of qualifications, that word that we've used historically in the past, is not even in either text, 1 Timothy or Titus. It's not a Greek word that's used in that, um, that piece of literature. The difficulty in this text for churches, I think, too, is although it is a great list of qualities of character, there's not really a, a job description for what shepherds or elders of a church should do. And so trying to find the function of this list within the context of leading a population that desires to follow Christ in one location has always been a tough thing to, to figure out and to get your head wrapped around. One of the most important features of 1 Timothy and Titus, too, is the need for leaders to be models of Christian living. In other words, Paul says, listen, if you're going to be the leaders within the context of church, you need to be uh, leading in such a way that other people want to uh, model after you, want to be like you, be like Jesus, but see how you're living life and kind of imitate that in different ways. Paul, in different texts, in those two letters, say, look, be examples uh, in speech in love, in faith, in life, in purity, in service to those around you. But also note in Titus, Paul calls attention to the, uh, the older men in the congregation and the younger men in the congregation. He calls attention to the older women in the congregation and the younger women in the congregation. He calls attention to slaves. But in the context of that, he says you're all equal. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Understand and know that that is the difference between us and the world. There's no hierarchy that we're all the same. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and that's really the only thing that matters. We are the body. We're the hands and feet of Jesus. 
So again, one of the major ideas to kind of get your head wrapped around 1 Timothy 3 and Titus is what is the function of these lists? And I hope that we'll kind of unpack some of that here in just a moment. But you've had leaders in your life that you truly loved, people that you were willing to follow anywhere. You've got kind of two different groups of leaders within your head or your life experience. Maybe they were in your family. Maybe they were in your, at your workplace. Maybe they were in an organization that you were a part of. But you know, you've had men and women in your life who truly lived out this servant-type, you're-better-than-me mentality, where, where they ask about your kids, or they ask about your health, or they interacted with you on a level different than, I'm the boss, listen to me. And you know, those, those people you would do anything for, right? They might call you on your day off, and you might have had some plans or not, but if they needed you, they're the type of person you'd say, yeah, I'll be in. If they wanted you to come in early or stay late, you didn't have a problem with that because you clearly saw their desire was you and your health and the well-being of everyone involved in the process. On the other hand, you've probably had leaders in your life like I have who if they called you on your day off, you would not answer the phone, right? You've had those, those folks. You just kind of move on. If they ask you to come in early or stay late, then there were some, some things that were already going on on your day and you wouldn't be able to do that. Why? Because they were all about making sure that you knew they were the boss, they were leading in that regard, and they weren't leading the way Jesus led. You see, those people who lead like Jesus, you, you just do anything for them. You, you want to be a part of what they're doing in life. Besides describing these good examples that we're going to read here in just a moment, the letter also focuses on the good reputation of Christian leaders in the community among non-believers, and I think that's huge for us to remember. Paul calls us as people who desire to look like Jesus, not only to look like Jesus in the context of who we see here today, but also in the marketplace. How do you look out there in the world If we could pick anybody from your workplace and ask about your reputation, what would they say about you? And Paul says that reputation, whether in the church or out in the marketplace, is so incredibly important to moving the story of Christ into other people's lives. Incredibly important. And in antiquity, the list that we're going to read here in just a moment, you could find almost on uh, any tombstone. They were typical things that whether you are a believer in Christ or a non-believer, They were important in life as a moral person to have as part of your character and makeup. So let's read this text in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul calls leaders of the church to look like. He says, This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be an elder, he desires an honorable position. So an elder must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, And have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker, or be violent, or uh, he must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. If a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? An elder must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. Paul kind of uh, bookends this list here for leaders in the church and for us as leaders uh, just in general with two 
important ideas. And one is this idea of living above reproach. Paul starts out with that idea. It's a movement really toward holiness, living that way. But notice that in that list in verse 7, he also comes back with saying that people outside the church speak well of this person. In other words, within the church and outside the church, this person is above reproach. Another word that another version uses there is blameless. Now, does that mean this person needs to be perfect? Not, not at all. It does mean that this person is striving to be more like Jesus, that in their life as a, as a whole, they're trying to move toward a Christ-like image. It's that movement toward holiness. It's a call to wholeheartedly be involved in who Jesus has called you to be, to be a part of everything that God has desired and designed for you. Now, for me personally, I, I'm typically not a very good diet person, and that's because it takes wholehearted commitment if you want to change the way you look and feel, right? So you can maybe every other day of the week run three miles. But if you're still at home eating Oreos, that doesn't help things much. You've got to change everything wholeheartedly if you want to be different. And so that means you've got to change the way you eat. You've got to change how you sleep. You've got to change your workout routine. All of those things come together to make you a healthy person. And Paul says, that's exactly what I'm talking about, about being a Christian leader. You've got to wholeheartedly, with both feet, jump in and say, God, I want to honor you. I want to be the person you've called me to be. So I'm not only going to be this person on Sunday when folks are watching, I'm also going to be that person Monday through Sunday out in the marketplace. Uh, Paul also says, uh, that uh, you need to have this quality of self-control in your life. You've got to be someone who's willing to control maybe some things that are going on in your life. Hey, it takes a lot of discipline to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, I, my guess is if you're like me, each and every one of us have some cookie jar on the counter every day of our life, and we're sitting there wondering, can I keep my hand out of the cookie jar today? Or we're taking one day at a time. But it takes self-control to be the person God's called us to be. And that takes work. It does uh, not come easily. And so we have to work at that. I don't know about you, but I started watching some of the Olympics last night. And I love watching the Olympics. It's a lot of fun. Uh, But these folks who are on that platform right now, they have worked their entire life to get where they're at. They've got a lot of self-control. They've made a decision that they're, they're not going to stay out late, that they're going to get up early and start the workout. They're going to eat right. They are absolutely, totally committed to this idea of controlling how their body looks and how they're going to perform. Paul goes on to say, though, that leaders in the church also need to live wisely and have a good reputation. Again, pointing to some characteristics that, whether you're a believer or not, are important in life. There, there are things that you need to have in your repertoire that would make everybody think you are a good person. You're, you've got a good reputation. Paul goes on to say, listen, this person should not be a heavy drinker as well. They don't need to be violent, and they don't need to be quarrelsome. They're virtues uh, accepted by anybody who took on responsibility. He said, listen, I've got something special to do, and so I'm going to guard that. 
You've had people in your life, I know, just like I've had, who kind of correct you as you go along the whole time. Maybe you're telling a story, and they correct every little piece of the story because they always have to be right. They've got to be the one with the last word. My brothers are already gone, but they were here this weekend, and believe me, I had some of that going on this weekend. I would tell a story, and they would be correcting me. So I can pick on them now that they're not here, right? But we've all got folks in our life who are kind of quarrelsome, who want to kind of have the last word. And Paul says, if you're going to be a Christian leader, you've got to be somebody who is empathetic, who's willing to listen, who's willing to journey with folks who might not have it all together yet, just like you don't have it all together yet. So be a person who is, uh, has the expectations in life that really everyone finds admirable. He goes on to say then, uh, this person should not be a new believer. Now, this particular baptism is happening in Siberia. I know we've had some cold baptisms out here. But I don't think, I mean, whoever that person is, I'm not saying they need to be an elder of the church, but they need to give them something. And that's some dedication. You know, cutting out about three feet of ice, I don't know, to, to get baptized because they're on fire for Jesus Christ. But Paul says, listen, that word elder kind of creeps in right here. He says, a leader in a church needs to be someone who's been around the block a few times, who's managed a family, maybe even a business, who knows what the world is about and knows how Satan can kind of detract you from your walk. He, He wants to make sure that these folks know how to teach and what to teach and how to model for new Christians that are becoming a part of that congregation. And lastly, he says, a church leader should not be a lover of money. I mean, the truth is, you and I realize we are passing through this life. That our treasure is not stored up on earth, but it is stored up in heaven. We want to be with our God, do we not? And so we don't store up stuff here on earth. And so the person who leads a church can also be this lover of money. Many times in the very early church, the shepherds, the elders of the church, were the ones who presided over the communion table and the ones who took up the collection for the church. It's interesting, there's a beautiful piece of literature written by Justin Martyr, it's about 150 AD is the time on it, but he talks about what a worship service looks like in that time period. Part of that process is what communion looked like, and it's absolutely beautiful. He says that every family brought something to that communion time together. Uh, So there may be some families who brought bread, there may be some families who brought the watered wine. There may be some families who uh, brought uh, uh, some, some change, some coin, some money for the contribution. And so the shepherds would preside over that, and after everyone had communion, after service was over, whatever was left after communion, the bread and the watered wine, they would gather that up and they would take it to the homes of widows and those members of the church who could not get out of their home. They would also have that, that collection, and they would help folks who were passing through their town who were Christians on their way who might need some help financially or members of the church who needed some help financially to buy food, or whatever might be going on. These men are people who put other people above and beyond their self. Well, we've looked at some secular qualities uh, that the world would say were honorable, but Paul says this is how you need to operate within the context of the church. Next Sunday, we're going to come back to the same text, and we're going to take a look at the other qualities we didn't talk about today, about how a man is, is to really run his family. What, is, what does a leader look like as he interacts with his own family, and how does that relate to the family of God? At the end of the day, what, what I want us to take away from today is that Jesus Christ is our model for what servant leadership looks like. Jesus Christ 
laid the law down for us in regards to how are we to make sure that other people realize they're more important than we are. That we live a life that is sacrificial. That we live a life that is absolutely selfless. That we put everyone else in front of ourselves. That we become second. Jesus says, that's the kind of life I want you to lead. And so in this text, he reminds all of us as leaders, wherever we might find ourselves, to be more and more like him. I'm going to invite Brad and the praise team back to the stage at this time. And as always, our shepherds and their wives will be gathered along the wall of this room. Uh, And maybe in your own life, there's something preventing you from being that leader that God truly has designed you to be. Maybe there's something you're hanging on to in this life and you're ready to move on. You're ready to get rid of it. You're ready just to full on, wholeheartedly be the guy or the the gal that, that God has designed you to be. And so I want to encourage you during the singing of this song to go visit one of our shepherds and let them lay hands on you, let them pray over you, let them bless you in some way uh, to to move forward in your maturation process as a Christian. Or maybe you yourself this morning says, listen, I don't have the power of the Holy Spirit living within me. I want to be the person God's called me to be, but I know there's some things I need to do to get there. And so uh, this morning we can baptize you into the name of Jesus Christ and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, able to move forward in your own life in ways that you never dreamed of because God is living in you now. My hope is this morning that you've been challenged to be the leader God's called you to be, that you will wrap your hands around all that God wants you to be as a leader wherever you find yourself. Let's stand and sing together.